0: Welcome to the Michigan Publishing Podcast, where we engage with the people and ideas that enable us to support the broadest possible access to scholarship and drive our leadership in academic publishing. I'm Elizabeth Demers, the Editorial Director and Senior Acquiring Editor in Political Science for the University of Michigan Press, as well as the host for this episode. This is the third episode of our four-part miniseries, Dialogues and Democracy in Conversation. Through this series, we explore some of the core tensions in American political culture, tensions that erupt every four years during the presidential election. Each episode features a pair of authors from the press's political science list who bring different perspectives to the table on U.S. issues of national concern. We cannot examine American politics without exploring issues of race, diversity, and intersection. Racial movements and politicians and citizens of color have played critical roles in the development of the nation and its political system. On today's episode, I am joined by Stephen Nadler, author of Vitality Politics, and Catherine Tate, author of Concordance. Both titles examine blackness in America and its role in politics. Stephen Nadler is professor of English at Spelman College and winner of the 2018 Tobin Siebers Prize for Disability Studies in the Humanities. His work, Vitality Politics, Health, Debility, and the Limits of Black Emancipation investigates violence against Black Americans through everyday, accumulative, contagious, and toxic attritions on health. Catherine Tate is professor of political science at Brown University. Her book, Concordance, Black Lawmaking in the U.S. Congress from Carter to Obama, examines Black legislators and the impact of increasing Black representation in national, state, and local government on the outlook among Black political leaders. The book was first written in 2014 and updated in a new edition in August 2020 and is now available in paperback. Stephen and Catherine, thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Thank you for including us in
0: this um, series.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here to talk about this important issue, share my research, and particularly to be here with Catherine. It's such an honor.
0: So I just wanted to say, I love these books. And at first glance, they seem so different. They're anchored in different disciplines and they have different methodologies, political science and literary criticism and disability studies. But ultimately, both books are about power and how access to political power can be transformative for black people and communities. I wanted to ask each of you to tell us about the inspiration behind these books and the key ideas that drove your research. And Catherine, why don't you go first?
1: Well, I was looking at trends in black public opinion and found that blacks have become less liberal since the 1980s. I published a book called What's Going On? on the topic in 2010. And I argued that blacks were less liberal because they had new elected officials who were not as radical as protest leaders. Black political incorporation moderated black opinion. So having made this claim, I decided to look at Black elected officials in the U.S. House of Representatives next. And there's a data set that assigns ideological scores to members of Congress, and to my amazement, the ideological scores were drifting to the political center. So Black House members are less liberal as well today. This led to my book, Concordance, where I claim that ambition and leadership within the Democratic Party have pushed Black Democrats in the House closer to the mainstream.
2: I would just start by saying, today we're having this conversation about there's two pandemics. One that is around health, of course, due to the coronavirus, and another around racial injustice. The inspiration behind my research began with the kind of realization that these two pandemics, these two crises of anti-Blackness, are actually interconnected. In my book, for example, I talk about the case of Freddie Gray that really brought home to me the connection between these two pandemics of anti-Blackness. Freddie Gray, as you probably know, is one of the many victims of police brutality. Freddie Gray died of severe spinal cord injuries inflicted while being arrested and transported in a police van on April 12, 2015. But I want to argue that we could actually think of the time and the origin of Freddie Gray's injuries as having actually happened 23 years earlier. In 1992, when Freddie Gray was only 22 months old, he was tested as having blood lead levels of 37 micrograms. Now the CDC considers any level higher than five micrograms as potent enough to cause physical and mental harm. So on that night, on April 12, 2015, when Freddie Gray was restrained because of quote, he was agitated. I would like to argue, we could actually trace that back to the idea of lead kids like Freddie Gray, who often experience a number of cognitive and psychological disabilities, including most notably attention disorders, anxiety, mood swings. And what we see in that moment of Freddie Gray's death is a kind of convergence of environmental racism and police violence. So in my study, Vitality Politics, I really want to look at then the way that racial violence has also been implemented through a kind of slow violence, through a kind of biopolitics around health. And by that I mean, when I say biopolitics of health, the way that social and political power is used to capacitate and cause some communities to thrive and live while at the same time allowing other communities to debilitate, to be disabled and to die. And so my work is interested in the intersection of these two things, because I argue that we often talk about liberal politics, Catherine just mentioned that, and about the possibilities for African-Americans to be integrated into the liberal meritocratic state. But I actually argue that that kind of liberal politics has always been complemented by this vitality politics. That undoes and preempts the possibilities for African Americans to thrive and actually be able to take advantage of, quote, these opportunities, if they really are opportunities, that the liberal state supposedly offers them.
0: And both of you, in your books, you coin new terms, Concordance for Catherine and Vitality Politics, which are also the titles of your books. In both books, these concepts lie at the very heart of your arguments. Can you explain how you came to identify these terms and please unpack them for us? How do these terms embody your work? Stephen, if you could go first.
2: A lot of my research is around the limitations, I would argue, of a kind of health disparity models that's very common within kind of a a liberal political discourse. But I would actually argue that language of health disparities is really a descriptive term. It's a language about outcomes. So we talk about disparities in health status, access to care, quality of treatment. And while all this is really important to discuss, it also can be very limiting. Because what often happens when we talk about question of health disparities is it very often kind of reverts back to a discussion of kind of implicit biases, That doctors need to have more cultural competence about their patients, which of course they do, that yes, we need to make healthcare accessible to all. But that conversation becomes focused on the individual and individual changes. It doesn't really demand kind of systematic change. And of course, I think the current conversation we're having as spearheaded by the Black Lives Matter movement is that we need to move the conversation away from just talking about racial prejudice to talking about more systematic change. I also found, you know, that that idea of health disparities often tends to come back to and repeat a kind of victim-blaming kind of language. I've noticed so much, for example, in our current moment when people talk about coronavirus's death, They go back to this language that Afro-Americans are more prone to diseases like asthma, diabetes, kidney disease. And again, that's important information to have. But it's often decontextualized in a way that doesn't really get at, not just the social determinants of these health disparities, but I would argue the larger vitality and biopolitics behind these health disparities. So let me give you an example of that just briefly to make to make that make a little bit more sense. For example, people are aware of the statistic now that one in 1000 afro Americans have died of the coronavirus. And of course again, people have used language like well, um African Americans are prone to asthma as a reason be- or diabetes as a reason behind this kind of disparity in health. But if you actually drill down into statistics, as, for example, one recent Harvard research did, Jose Ferreira, he actually found out that, you know, what's behind a lot of that um, health disparity is that Afro-Americans who are dying from coronavirus live in communities where they're actually exposed to more unclean air. So again, we have to think about the politics behind that. What have been the choices, political, social, that have permitted certain communities not be, to be capacitated to thrive and to live fully and to be able then to have access to their rights and allowed other communities then to have that. And so I, I, I'm really interested um, in bringing a larger narrative to the way we think about these health issues.
0: And Catherine, in your book, Concordance is a process. It it, it describes the process of, I think, changing political attitudes um, in different directions. Can you talk a little bit about how that works?
1: Um, Concordance means uh, in harmony. What I found was that uh, as Black House members have moved closer to the center over time, the Democratic Party has uh, liberalized over time as well. So they're they're meeting, they have more ground together together. Uh, that they're sharing. Black House members had organized the Black Caucus in 1971 to challenge Democratic Party leadership. And so that's less today, less apparent that they're in a challenging mode than that they're, you know, becoming leaders within the Democratic Party and their agenda uh, is comparable to the Democratic Party's uh, political agenda. Do you think that the Black Lives Matter movement will
0: re-radicalize
1: the Congressional Black Caucus? Right now, no. So Biden, um, the Democratic nominee for president in 2020, is not for defunding the police. That's a uh, uh, goal of Black Lives Matter protesters is to defund the police. And by, they mean literally that their budgets should be reduced and there should be maybe other types of uh, new forms of policing developed that involve social workers to um, uh, address you know, problems that and shouldn't necessarily involve the police. So Biden is not for defunding the police. And none of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus members, except for Ilhan Omar of uh, Minnesota, uh, a House member, she supports defunding the police. So a few Black House members are for defunding the police. And I think it sort of shows that elected officials are not as radical as uh, protest leaders. And so they are more mainstream. I'm interested. I mean,
0: we live in such interesting political times right now between the election, the pandemic, um, the Black Lives Matter movement. How effective does racial justice tend to be in mobilizing voters um, as opposed to elected politicians? And do you think this has changed over the years? And Catherine, do you want to take this first? And then we'll ask Stephen.
1: You know, I don't know if the protests will lead to a large increase in voter turnout since the pandemic and the wrecked economy have disrupted the lives of young Americans and they still may not bother to vote. I think the media has not picked up on this, that, you know, there's been, you know, stories that there'll be a record number of evictions and uh, home foreclosures. And so in general, you know, when the economy is doing poorly, this could negatively affect turnout. So I think that it's, we've got two trends where you know this protest may mobilize some voters, but I still think that the circumstances today are, are quite grim. So in November, we'll see if there's a record turnout of voters and in particular black voters who've been hit especially hard by the pandemic and uh, Latinos as well. So I, I, uh, I think that the racial justice uh, reckoning um, might not be that impactful for the November election.
2: I would certainly agree with that. Um, instead of making a prediction, though, I would actually like to argue, I think there's some ex- something exciting about our current cultural moment around these issues of racial justice. And that has to do with the way I think there's a reframing of what we mean by racism, which is a conversation that we need to have for a long time. We are getting to a point, I think, where we're finally beginning to talk about how there's a kind of post-intentional kind of racism. For too long, what we have meant by racism has has been around intentional acts of of a kind of racial terrorism. But now we're understanding that really being not racist doesn't really mean you're anti-racist. And I'm encouraged by that. And I, I think the conversation that's being opened up, particularly by the Black Lives Matter movement, most people think about it as just being about police brutality. They're really trying to get a thicker description of what racism is. I mean, they're starting with the notion of the precarious nature of Black lives in the United States. And for me, as someone who wants to look about health debilitation, needs to be um, interconnected to questions of criminalization and racial violence. That idea that we look about the way Black people are made vulnerable, about the way they live in very precarious conditions, and that has been happening um, all the time. We've been using this colorblind language of kind of racial op- opportunities to ignore the way that, that this um, new vulnerability works, I think is very exciting. And so Um, I'm not sure whether it will mobilize voters, but I hope we're starting to get a set of voters who are understanding these issues in new ways and trying to understand how racism works in this country in new ways.
0: Do you think that the Democratic vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris, will have an influence on getting voters to the polls?
1: I think that... um Biden's choice of Harris will help energize the base of blacks, Asians, and women whom he needs to win the election. So people like Harris working in the White House and second in charge can improve levels of voter satisfaction and possibly trust in government. Trust in government right now uh, as measured in public opinion polls is currently at historic lows. So a Biden-Harris administration may repair that low level of trust uh, because of Harris being descriptively representative of underrepresented groups. So, yes, I think that Harris will have an impact on the election and, uh, and on public opinion.
2: I would certainly agree with that, and I certainly hope that is what happened. I, I think that you know she is a historic choice and one that I, I hope will be the first of, of many. However, you know, going back to what Kath was talking about earlier, I guess... I, I come to this with a with a set of concerns, too, how in many ways, even though she is a choice that comes in response to all these racial injustice protests, her politics is, is not really rooted in that. And it goes back to, uh, a, again, a problem where we practice a kind of representational politics that can become a, a kind of, I'm going to use a term of the scholar Roderick Ferguson can become a kind of repressive incorporation. And by that, I mean, we we often misuse and abuse political symbols who really don't have a transformative politics as part of their agenda as a way of showing supposedly some kind of racial progress. And we only have to think of the way certain anti-Black policies can have a Black face through the choice of Clarence Thomas and Ben Carson to be reminded about how this works. And so I would just hope as we go forward that we really be mindful of this. I'm encouraged by the fact that, you know, Kamala Harris in her own policy platform did trend more towards certain social justice reforms. She got behind, you know, the elimination of private prisons, the need of mandatory sentences, the reducing of the use of cash bail and legalizing marijuana. And so I hope that she will bring that perspective and push Biden more towards that, that criminal justice, that reform that we so need. But again, I think we need to be cautious not just to celebrate another black face, if it doesn't also come with a more
1: radical black
2: perspective.
1: I think that um, voters are still not ready to, are not uh, finished with descriptive representation. I agree that there might not be that much substantive representation in a Biden-Harris administration, but. They just look at Washington and they don't see people like Harris there in leadership roles. And so I still think that even after we're post-Obama, voters are still really grateful and and glad that um, Biden picked uh, Kamala Harris as the vice presidential running mate. But caution about, you know, substantive representation being out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Catherine.
0: So kind of jumping off from those comments, following the racial activism and the calls for reform that have developed over the past few months, as well as sort of the kind of entrenchment of Washington that people perceive via the media. Do you think we will see long term changes and solutions to racism in America in the next few years? Catherine, do you want to go first?
1: Well, I think that this is a unique moment for uh, us historically. So the you know George Floyd murder in 2020 uh, in May led to the largest ever sustained protests in U.S. history. Uh, you know, protests had occurred in 2014 and 2015 over the deaths of you know victims of police uh, brutality. Uh, you had Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, other protest events as well. Uh, but what makes this different than from six years ago, is that whites and other people of color have joined in, and there was a large increase in support for the Black Lives Matter movement in June, which today has abated some. So we're, you know, debating whether since there is less support for Black Lives Matter in August as opposed to June. So since there's been this backsliding, people wonder whether there's real change in opinions of people in white America. I would say that there is, and that. I think some real opinion change has occurred. And so I do think that there will be consequences because of this particular moment uh, in history. Um, The police are not trusted to be fair. And I think the legal system overall will be better at holding the police accountable. I think that while, you know, Breonna Taylor, grand jury uh, disappointed or the prosecutor disappointed uh, the public in how Uh, the state responded to that particular event, I still think the scores of other cases out there across the United States, that judicial system will hold, the uh, legal system will hold police more accountable.
2: I would say I certainly agree with that. Um, And I do think that maybe this time white allies will do more than a kind of virtue signaling by putting a kind of Black Lives Matter sign in, in their front yard. But we we'll really hopefully stay woke. And of course, you know, stay woke in a way that they become more conscious of the way a kind of systematic racism works in this country. At the same time, I guess, based if I'm drawn on my own research, I'm also a little nervous that, again, we might have another kind of co-optation and recentering of whiteness that comes through this kind of criminal justice reform. Um, if I'm referring back to my own book on vitality politics, uh, one of the things I look at is kind of the opioid crisis and the kind of criminal justice reform that came out of that. And while there are very encouraging signs of a kind of criminal justice reform, because we've shifted more towards a medicalized model of addiction as a disease and shifted away from a kind of criminalizing morality, and we often talked about kind of alternate kind of solutions such as drug courts and medically assisted treatment solutions. What ended up happening is still huge kind of differences in the way these kinds of criminal justice reforms were administered to, to people of color and, and white people. What has happened, for example, in terms of drug court is um, those re- referrals to drug court are much higher for, for people who are white than, than Latinx people or African-Americans, because they're somehow seen as not compliant to treatment for lots of reasons, and often African-Americans are not kind of diagnosed with a kind of disability, such as addiction. They're seen as, again, somehow more hard and unresponsive to treatment. So so I always think, you know, again, we need to be cautious about this. While I think there's advancement, we need to learn also from a kind of current moment where we've seen some criminal justice reform and the, and the ways that this can be co-opted so that Someone who does disability studies, white people can be said to have a disability like dope sickness, but people of color are not seen in that way. So, it's I, I, I think again I, I, that that we should learn from from that lesson.
0: Stephen, that was a fascinating part of your book where you talk about whiteness and the opioid epidemic and addiction, and it. It reminded me that I wanted to ask you about the coronavirus pandemic in particular, which of course occurred after your book was written. And people of color have been really hit much harder. I mean, everybody's been hit hard, but much harder by the coronavirus in terms of outcomes and um, infection rates and so forth. And it seems like in the media, there's been a lot of blaming the health of people of color for their... The physical reactions to coronavirus. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about politics and pandemic.
2: I think that gets to the heart of what I was starting to explain earlier when I was kind of introducing this concept of vitality politics, a kind of biopolitics, as an alternate way of looking at these kind of health disparities. I mean, in my research, for example, you know, I looked at particularly kind of the post-reconstruction period, where um, a lot of people actually were arguing that the whole problem of racial integration w- would be solved by the dying off of, of kind of African Americans due to um, supposedly their greater susceptibility to diseases through their inability to practice kind of um, sanit- sanitary habits. And when I look at our current cultural moment, it reminds me so much how there's still a kind of narrativizing of these events around the same coded language. It's not as overt, but it's still there. So, as I was just kind of mentioning earlier, I mean, just looking at the idea of, well, they have more pre existing conditions like asthma and diabetes, and this is what accounts for the higher death rate among African Americans. That is so decontextualized. It doesn't look at what I call the slow violence that has debilitated and disabled African Americans, that they have this higher incidence of asthma or diabetes. And like I say, that recent statistic by, by the Harvard um, scientists looking at how all lot of these deaths are happening in communities that have been neglected and underfunded and, and are exposed to all this unhealthy air really gets at the way, you know, this pandemic is tied to that same kind of vitality politics. This isn't just about environmental racism. This is about social and political choices that have abandoned these neighborhoods. We have these racialized, segregated neighborhoods, and there's not the same emphasis on doing the kind of funding um, in order to have the people in those communities thrive in the way that we we do in other more well-off neighborhoods. And so I think this coronavirus crisis, as a lot of people said, has exposed some of the fissures and, and gaps that exist in our society. But I hope it also exposes that the problem... And that the gaps are not just about some health disparities like differences and incidence of asthma, but looks at the larger kind of slow racial violence um, within kind of anti-Black ecologies that have created this problem in the first place.
0: Catherine, I was looking at Emily's list and... Women comprise half of the United States population, but hold just 19% of the seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and 21 of 100 seats in the Senate. And according to them, for black women, the numbers are smaller. Just 20 currently have seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. But yet this election cycle, more people of color and more black women in particular are running for office at all levels of government. Do you see uh, chances for success for people attaining office, and do you think this will continue to drive the Democratic Party further left?
1: I think that uh, the women's vote is, I think, uh, going to be pivotal in this uh, 2020 election. It's you know there was a gender gap that was noteworthy in 2016, uh, but it's you know might hit 20 percent is what was thought in uh, 2020. But and then on the, at the same time. You know, we see abortion politics now are being brought directly into the 2020 election late in the day. So I think that this uh, judicial appointment is going to continue to mobilize women and women of color. So I think exciting times are really ahead. And I do think that women candidates will it liberalize the Democratic Party base. I think that it might not be, push them ideologically to the left, but I think it'll introduce a a new consideration of women and and family issues so that, you know, we might see efforts to get paid leave sort of mandated and sick days uh, being mandated as work regulations. But, you know, this judicial appointment uh, coming up, I think will mobilize women. And so we're going to see these new elected leaders, uh, these new women uh, and women of color coming into an environment that's quite contentious uh, over, you know, abortion politics. It's not going to sort of dissipate uh, this concern over the status of Roe v. Wade.
0: Stephen, do you want to weigh in on that?
2: Uh, The other thing I would maybe add is, you know, I'm hoping also that people will be mobilized by cases like Breonna Taylor's. And, you know, there's a whole movement, um, Say Her Name, that that has sort of been growing in social media. I think there's been more attention now to the way um, in these incidents of police brutality, you know, the kind of disposability of, of Black women's lives has often been ignored. And I know with my my young African women students at Spelman, I mean, they're very energized by this and trying to fight against that, that kind of anti-Black violence against Black women that has often been kind of marginalized in discussions of police brutality. So I know they're energized by this, and I, I think that will kind of bring them out to vote.
0: So finally, I want to ask you both, if you have to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the presidential election, what would it be? Stephen, please go first.
2: I guess I would go back to some of the themes that I've talked about before, I mean, to kind of tick them off again. I really want people to have a greater awareness of slow violence. You know, as important as the current conversation is around this police brutality, these spectacular forms of violence can kind of elbow out of consideration other forms of slow violence. I'm sometimes concerned about the way, again, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and its insistence on the way Black life is dehumanized and exists in a state of precarity and vulnerability gets reduced to just a problem of that kind of direct police violence. That is horrendous. It needs to be stopped. But we also have to look at this kind of anti-Black violence that happens accumulately over time, more slowly, but ends up being just as deadly. And that is a kind of what I hope readers will really carry away from my book, the importance to bring attention to that as well, and that that will energize them um, as they fight for racial justice, as well as the idea to end criminalization and, and police brutality.
0: Catherine, if you have to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the presidential elections, what would it be?
1: Um, I think Black political leadership has changed. They aim to be national leaders, and so this puts them in the center of things. I think this period of Black political incorporation is really peaking, uh, and so they will be quite visible as, as national leaders. Kamala Harris, if elected is going to likely run as president again in 2028, along with Cory Booker and perhaps others. And so we still see um, that Black political leadership is being challenged as well by the progressive left and by protests. And we also see um, Blacks uh, running for elective office successfully as Republicans. So I think this is a moment in history that we'll look back upon and, and just say that the country has uh, learned to trust and allow in positions of power uh, Blacks, uh, Black Americans, and that this is a really historic time that we'll look back upon.
0: Thank you both, Stephen and Catherine, so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating discussion.
2: Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Vitality Politics and Concordance can be purchased at press.umich.edu and are also available through the University of Michigan Press eBook Collection. For other titles in the Dialogues in Democracy collection, and to learn more about Michigan publishing, please visit publishing.umich.edu. Please tune in for our next episode in the Dialogues in Democracy In Conversation miniseries for a conversation about presidential leadership. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Michigan Publishing Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. You can also follow the University of Michigan Press on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn for posts about episodes and other relevant content about our work. This podcast was written by Jillian Graham and produced by Teresa Schmidt with the support of Michigan Publishing at the University of Michigan.